pop culture to politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth, a great nation facing a great crisis on the world stage. Uh, the Russian leader, the Russian dictator, making the very open promise that if he continues to lose this war in Ukraine, and all evidence is that he will, that he would resort to anything, uh, including the use of tactical nuclear weapons. What should the response of the United States be, both on the world stage, at the United Nations, and uh, in terms of our own protection? Uh, somebody who's wrestled with that kind of issue and performed very successfully as our United Nations ambassador is the Honorable Nikki Haley. She also had two outstanding terms as a very popular governor of South Carolina. And she is the author of a new book entitled uh, Leadership Lessons from Bold Women. Actually, the title of the book is If You Want Something Done, and then it's dot, 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 and then you turn over to the back cover where there's a picture of Governor Haley. And if you want something done, ask a woman. Uh, Governor Haley, thanks very much for joining us again on the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be on. And, you know, the, the title of the book comes from the Margaret Thatcher quote, if you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. And so we're super excited. We um, launched the book today, and we've got a book tour going on. I hope your listeners will go to NikkiHaleyBook.com and see if we're going to be in a city near them. Um, but it's a great book about ordinary women who became extraordinary. And by working hard and making sure that they, you know, proved that they deserve to be in the room, they changed the world. And we hope that this is, you know, a set of stories that inspires women to want to be courageous, want to be inspirational, and want to go and do great things. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I know that you disagree with the columnist Michelle Goldberg on almost everything. She's somebody who's way off to the left. But she's talking about right now, as we're speaking... And uh, as we're talking about your book, if you want something done, uh, the uh, women of Iran and the women of Russia are both striking out against those evil regimes. What is it about women's leadership? You talk about leadership lessons from bold women. What are the special leadership lessons that bold women could be associated with more than Oh, some of the uh, aging male leaders that we might see around the world and uh, country after country. Well, we see good leadership traits from both men and women. This is one, you know, when I was growing up and I was younger, I didn't see a lot of things written about female leaders and I didn't see a lot of female leaders to look up to. So for all those people that have daughters or young professionals that they want to hear and read about these stories you can find out that these were women that were courageous they were bold they believed in themselves and they understood that at the end of the day feminism isn't about victimhood feminism is about making sure you work hard and prove that you deserve to be in the room what we're seeing with iran and in russia with these women protests are women using the power of their voice they understand that they need to see change and in order to see real change you've got to put yourself out there and you've got to do that and you know it's heartbreaking to see what's happening in iran i mean the idea that a girl was murdered just because she wasn't wearing her headdress properly um the fact that in russia women are seeing you know their husbands and men 
um, sent off to a war that they don't necessarily believe in. I mean, these are women that are going to fight the fight because at the end of the day, they're loyal to their families, they're loyal to their country, and they're not just going to talk about it. They're going to do something about it. What about the response of the United States so far? Um, you're you're out of office right now, but you, I'm sure, still think about what is going on at, at the United Nations, what's going on in terms of national security with the open threat to use uh, tactical nuclear weapons by Vladimir Putin. Uh, do you believe the uh, response by our government has so far been adequate? Uh, what should they do differently if there is something specifically they should do differently? Well, you know, this war with Ukraine and Russia is bigger than just about Ukraine. This is a war for freedom, and it's one that we have to win. Um, because if we don't win this war, um, you know, we'll continue to see Russia, you know, advance. We'll continue to see China advance, Iran advance, North Korea advance. And so this is one where we have to fight for freedom and, and do it in a way that we're successful. That doesn't mean we send blank checks to Ukraine. I don't believe in that. But it does mean sending them the equipment so that they can fight properly. And, you know, we're seeing Putin is really um, falling fast. I mean, he doesn't have the confidence of his people. He doesn't have the confidence of his military. Um, you see that it's pretty bad when you're getting your drones from Iran and your rockets from North Korea. Um, they've raised the draft age in Russia now to 65. And, you know, you've got people leaving by the hundreds of thousands because they don't want to defend Putin or defend their country. And so, you know, what I can tell you is if Putin is successful, then he'll do what he said he was going to do, which is Poland and the Baltics will be next. And that's a, those are NATO um, areas that we'll have to defend and it'll be an all out world war. And so what we want to do is make sure that that Ukraine finishes this. They've made good ground. And and Putin sees that Putin is dangerous. He's very dangerous. And, you know, yes, he is threatening a nuclear weapon. That's what he does. He does the fear mongering. But the one thing we don't do is let our foot off the gas, because the second he smells weakness or the second he smells blood in the water, that's not going to pull him back. That's only going to make him think that he's got more ground to stand on. One of the bold women that you profile in your book uh, was Golda Meir, who uh, faced uh, a, a, a really what was an existential threat to the nation of Israel in 1973 in the October War. What can people who read your book, if you want something done, it's posted up at our website at michaelmedved.com, what can people learn specifically from the experience of uh, uh, Golda as a wartime prime minister? You know, the wonderful thing about Golda Meir was she was a problem solver. You know, she, she grew up um, from a poor family, but when she saw what happened and she saw, you know, basically what was done to the Jewish people, she wanted to make sure that the Jewish people were never dependent on anyone for their safety or independence again. She very much fought to have a Jewish state. So what she did was she made sure that not only once um, she was one of the founders of Israel, she made sure that they had the money to establish in Israel. When they had to go to war, she made sure that she raised money to get them the arms that they needed to win the war. And then she went on to lead Israel. And, you know, she was someone that just never took no for an answer. It was always about what do we need to do to make sure that things like the Holocaust never happen again. And I think when you look at problem solvers like that, that say, if not me, then who? Those are the ones that really do make such a tremendous difference on the world around them. 
And, and, you know, I think that strong will is something that we, you know, continue to need to see in leaders. Do you think that um, uh, our politics has uh, leaned too much on the courtroom? Uh, we have so many charges right now against uh, the former president, and now he's launching a lawsuit against CNN. Do you think it might be good for the country if we took some of these disputes out of the courtroom? Well, I think they're now trying to politicize courts, right? And so that's a dangerous thing when you go down that path. And the courts will play that out the way they're going to play that out. But, you know, what I think is we've got to make sure, like the New York State Attorney General, you know, for I have a policy organization, um, that their tax returns are supposed to be confidential. Uh, you know, a news outlet got it. They sent it to us, and we said, how do you have it? And they sent us a copy, and it was stamped with the New York State Attorney General's office on it. She leaked it to them. So, you know, as long as you're seeing government offices that are politicized and now you're seeing that courts are being politicized, I mean, we really need to have a an awakening in this country to get the, the biases out and to start really focusing on how we're going to strengthen our country again. Because when America is distracted, the world is less safe. And we've really got to focus on what it takes to be strong again and make sure that we don't allow that to happen. Uh, the uh, book, If You Want Something Done, the author, a former ambassador to the U.N., former governor of South Carolina, Nikki R. Haley. We will be right back with more on The Medved Show. On the Michael Medved Show, uh, Leadership Lessons from Bold Women. Uh, the book is called If You Want Something Done. The author is uh, Nikki Haley, who served as United States Ambassador to the United Nations uh, from 2017 until 2019. And she previously served two terms, very successful terms, uh, left as governor of South Carolina with very high popularity. And she's had previous uh, bestsellers um, about her life. There are insights about her life and her experience in uh, the, the book. And uh, you'll meet women who you may not have heard of before. Uh, for instance... Uh, I was uh, struck reading um, about a fascinating story I knew nothing about, the story of Virginia Walden Ford. What made her so worthy of your attention, Governor Haley? You know, that story with Virginia is amazing because here was a woman who desperately um, wanted to make sure that her children got a good education. And they lived in a crime-ridden neighborhood. Um, that had failing public schools, and she wanted to do something um, to help her children. And so she basically got out there, and, you know, she couldn't afford private schools. She got out there. She fought for school choice. Um, but what made this so amazing is she had a terrible fear of public speaking. But her children mattered so much that she knew she had to do something. So before you know it, she was fighting for school choice in Washington, D.C. She went and she testified in Congress. Not only did she help her children, but she helped thousands of other children who didn't have to be trapped in, in schools just because of where they were born and raised. And she really went out there and said that, look, segregation is, 
is when you um, are educating a child based on where they're born and raised, not on the fact that they deserve a good education. And it's a very inspirational story about, you know, not coming from means or resources, but the love of a mom for her children. And if that meant fighting in Washington and, and going to Congress to make a difference and, and making presidents do something, she did that. And uh, by the way, it's also um, very interesting because when you look at the issue of school choice, it's sort of a quiet issue in much of the country right now, but it is actually moving voters, according to polls everywhere, particularly voters in communities of color. Uh, is that something you've found? You've been out campaigning for some of your fellow Republicans. Have you found a lot of enthusiasm for that school choice issue? Yes, and especially more since COVID hit, because, you know, during COVID, um, you know, if you took a kid like who was in rural South Carolina where I was born and raised, you know, here you're putting him on a screen he's never used before, using a hot spot on a school bus down the street. And if he's in third grade, you know, what's he supposed to be learning? He's learning reading. He's learning fractions. He's learning history. You know, like which teachers are going to tell his parents to hold him back? And so what we saw was not only that homeschooling uh, quadrupled, since COVID, and the majority of those that moved to homeschooling were um, were minority families. And, you know, everybody that was wealthy, well, they just got to go to a private school. But if you weren't wealthy, you were really stuck. And, you know, I think that anyone that is against school choice, you know, basically thinks that, that minority parents or, or challenged areas, the parents are unable to, um, you know, suggest select the education place for their children and i think parents know what's best for their kids and i think that includes finding the right school and the way of means of teaching to get them to be successful speaking of education issues glenn youngkin uh who's one of the promising the new republican governor of uh, virginia who uh, had a surprisingly strong victory there he partially got elected in resistance to uh uh, basically school curricula that ran down the United States of America. Uh, your story, which I think most of America knows, of being a child of immigrants from India and, and enjoying some of the blessings of this country that everyone in your family loves so passionately. Is this uh, a, an important issue for the future of the Republican Party? Basically, the issue of... of um, trying to instill not just knowledge of reading and writing and arithmetic, but knowledge of patriotism in our young people. You know, I mean, I've been all over the country campaigning for candidates, for House, Senate, gubernatorial candidates. We've been in a dozen um, states so far. And education is a big issue um, from a couple of standpoints. One is people want transparency in education. Parents deserve to know what their children are being taught. Um, you know, they don't want to deal with critical race theory where if you've got a, a girl going into kindergarten. If she's white, you're telling her she's bad. And if she's brown or black, you're telling her she's never going to be good enough or she's always going to be a victim. They don't want boys playing in women's sports. You know, it's the women's issue of our time. But, you know, more importantly, we've got to make sure that our children love America. You know, we are seeing this national self-loathing where we've got people saying that America's oppressed and it's racist. You know, if it was racist, I wouldn't have been elected the first female minority governor in the country. I mean, this is the best country in the world. I would be at the United Nations, and ambassadors would tell me how they loved the fact that we had 
freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to do and be anything we wanted to be without government getting in the way. And, you know, our children need to know how blessed we are and they need to fight for it. I'm in awe of the people in Ukraine because as much as they're fighting and defending their country, that used to be us. We used to fight that way. We used to love our country that way. And we've got to get back to that. And that starts in schools and that starts at a young age and that starts in showing the benefits of this country and how blessed we are to be here. In terms of um, the the movement and, and again of communities of color and voters of color toward the Republican Party, particularly for Latinos and uh, Asian Americans, um, what uh, is most important for the party to do to secure that future, to be more competitive uh, among every segment of the American population? You know, what I've told the Republican Party and basically anyone that will listen is, you know, your traditional Republicans have to start going to places that are uncomfortable to go to. You know, my parents were Democrats up until the time of Reagan, not because they believed in Democrat policies, but because Republicans never talked to them. You know, we've got to go into these communities and ask them what they care about. And guess what? They care about making sure their children have a good education. They care about our streets being safe. They care about the fact that they don't want government overreach. They care about low taxes. And when you ask them what they care about and they hear from you directly about what your solutions are, they come to us. And, you know, we've we've got to not be so arrogant to say you should be with us. We should we should be welcoming enough to go to them and say we need you. And I think that when we start to do that and show them that the Republican Party is the party of solutions that lift up all people, not just a certain segment of people, all people. We're not like the Democrats where they think minorities are incapable of going to a DMV to get an ID so that they can vote. We don't think that minority parents are incapable of picking the school for their children. We think that when people have information and they're educated, that they focus on doing better in life, and we have the solutions to make them do that. And I think when we get out in the in different communities and tell them that, we share family values, that's when good things happen. And a good thing that's happened is the release of her new book, If You Want Something Done, uh, Nikki Haley. The book's posted at michaelmedved.com. Thank you for the conversation, Governor, and Godspeed to you. We'll be right back. Michael Medved show some items of um, breaking news uh, that are very much worth um, carrying and reporting on. Uh, another great day for the Dow Jones Industrial Average and uh, a, a pretty amazing. It, uh, up 825 points today. That's uh, remarkable. S&P, Standard & Poor, up 112 points. Uh, the market's just uh, loving it. NASDAQ uh, jumped over 3%. Uh, is that uh, good news for the Republicans, for the Democrats? It's good news for the country. And uh, that's, that's actually a, a healthy sign, which um, um, uh, who knows what it means or what it means politically or even economically for the future. 
but it uh, certainly probably diminishes the fears of some kind of abrupt and devastating uh, recession. Uh, but there's also this from the Wall Street Journal. Hans Niemann, who is uh, 19 years old, he's an American teenager who has uh, been involved in, in actually beating officially the international chess champion, champion Magnus Carlsen last month. It uh, turns out he has likely received illegal assistance. In other words, he was cheating in more than 100 games, according to an investigation by chess.com has found. Uh, and this is, not, this is more shocking and despicable, frankly, if it's true, uh, even than using uh, steroids, uh, illegal drug substances, uh, like uh, uh, Sammy Sosa and uh, and Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds, the uh, previous quote home run kings who have been dethroned because of cheating. Uh, when world chess champion Magnus Carlsen last month suggested that uh, American grandmaster Hans Moek Neiman was a cheater, the 19-year-old launched an impassioned defense. Neiman said he had cheated, but only at two points in his life, describing them as youthful indiscretions committed when he was 12 and 16 years old. Now, however, an investigation into Neiman's play conducted by Chess.com, an online platform where many top players compete, has found the scope of his cheating to be far wider and longer-lasting than he publicly admitted. The report, reviewed by the Wall Street Journal, alleges that Neiman likely received illegal assistance in more than 100 online games as recently as 2020. Those matches included contests in which prize money was on the line. The site uses a variety of cheating detection tools, including analytics that compare moves to those recommended by chess engines. Uh, these are machines which are capable of beating even the greatest human players every time. Okay, apparently what uh, I had read previously, and I mentioned to you previously, what this involved was going into the bathroom. That's not illegal. That is permitted. But what is not permitted to be taking uh, your device with you that you can then put the moves in that have just been made in the game and they will come back with uh, what this brilliant machine would do which can help you a lot and uh it's just shocking this this um uh it, it, w this could become a notorious name hans moke uh neiman uh in any event so much for the uh latest uh breaking news from the world of chess. Oh, yes, and the Washington Post is reporting that lawyers for Donald Trump asked the court to block an appeals court order saying the Justice Department could review certain materials seized from his Florida residence in its ongoing criminal investigation to determine if the former president or his advisors mishandled national security secrets. Uh, this this means that they are contesting, I believe, what the uh, special master that was initially the special master, Judge Deary, 
was suggested by Trump. So we will see where this goes. Okay, speaking about unfairness and cheating and uh, craziness, uh, there's a headline over at Newsweek. And the headline is, I was asked to agree to a white people or racist contract at work. Can you imagine having a clause that says all, all white people are racist and that has to be part of your contract? This is a piece by uh, Nicole Levitt, who's an attorney and she's also a psychologist in uh, Philadelphia. And she says, I used to be a liberal. I still am liberal in the sense that I believe in free speech, due process, the Constitution and civil rights. But political liberalism seems to have passed me by and, in my opinion, evolved into a very ideological form of leftism. So now I feel politically homeless. I don't really subscribe to either of the major political parties, says Nicole Levitt. For many years, I was working as a lawyer in private practice, focusing on family law. When my current employer had an opening, I jumped at it because I wanted to represent domestic violence victims and not worry about who has the money to pay and who doesn't. I felt it was a wonderful opportunity for me and I really liked the work. Most of our clients are people of color, she says, and when George Floyd was murdered in June of 2020, our workplace organized meetings about it. Everyone was upset. This evolved into having what was later referred to as a diversity, equity, and inclusion DEI sessions, where we had affinity groups where staff were separated out into groups based on ethnicity, for example, into a white group and to a black group. I was told that I had to attend a white affinity group meeting, but eventually I was given permission to not attend because I really don't agree with being separated by race. Well, good for her. So what happened? I joined the uh, Racial Equity Committee at my job in 2020, but over time I personally found the language used against white people to be very dehumanizing. I also discovered that there was to be a difference in stipends paid to members of the Racial Equity Audit Task Force, REIT, where black members of REIT would be paid more than their white counterparts. Meanwhile, one of the trainings I was given noted that white supremacy is, quote, a smog we all ingest. Another was about how our organization was complicit in systemic racism and white supremacy. It was a given that if you're white, you're racist. And I was even asked to agree to a full value contract shared over email that included a point saying, quote, we had to own that all white people are racist and that I am not the exception. In other words, you had to sign a contract that actually said uh, all white people are racist and I'm one of them. It's basically saying you're racist even if you believe you are not. She said, I did listen to the training, but I didn't adhere to an ideology that I thought was racist. I don't think you can fix racism through what I saw as more racism. Bravo. Brava, actually, it's a lady. You can't fix racism against black and brown people by, as I saw it, casting aspersions against people who aren't people of color. I don't believe America is a racist country. I believe we have not always been true to our ideals, and we have a lot of work to do, but I don't think we're an inherently racist country. I believe the 1619 Project has some truth to it, but it's not the whole truth of what this country stands for. 
and it was presented as the truth about America in some of our training sessions. When there are no other dissenting opinions being presented, how is that helpful in an office environment? So what happened to this courageous lawyer at her workplace? Uh, the punchline uh, coming right up right here on the MedVet Show. Join in your daily dose of debate. You are, you are not always right. Get a grip. You okay. are not always right. The Michael Medved Show. Medved show uh, in the middle of the story of Car uh, Nicole Levitt, who is an attorney and a psychologist in Philadelphia. She, as an attorney, was involved in uh, domestic violence victims, trying to help them in their situation. And uh, unfortunately, the large law firm that she was employed by. Uh, was taken over by this woke ideology of how white privilege is everything, uh, that people are fundamentally different and should be treated differently based upon race. And uh, she writes, I don't believe America is a racist country. I know racism exists and I want to eliminate it. By saying America is not a racist country, I'm not denying that racism exists. It's there. But I don't personally believe in Ibram X. Kendi's ideas of anti-racism, which in part states that the only way to address prior racist discrimination is through present anti-racist discrimination. I don't believe that's going to eliminate racism. It's going to perpetuate it. It's going to make it worse. By pitting <clears throat> different identities against each other, I don't think that's the way we should be operating in this country. And as an attorney, I believe a lot of what I experienced violated civil rights laws. So, I have submitted an Equal Employment Opportunity Commission complaint against my employer for singling out white people to agree to a full value contract or set of standards in the workplace saying they are racist. I believe this is in violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Pennsylvania Human Relations Act. You are not allowed to scapegoat any race, including white people, for whatever purpose. A racially hostile atmosphere is one in which there are constantly messages of stereotyping, discriminating, scapegoating one race, which is what I feel I experienced. I believe that a better approach, she says, wrapping up, would be something more humanistic that didn't divide us into different groups, something that doesn't, in my opinion, dehumanize, stereotype, or scapegoat one race or over another, or ascribe, ascribe characteristics to one race over another, something that brings people together. Where racism exists, I want to stamp it out. I just don't uh, believe it's everywhere. I don't believe that the one cause for every disparity between groups is racism. Uh, I think you have to be very wary of monocausal explanations for complex problems. I've learned that it's worth it to stand up for your ideals, but that you will pay a price. I think you're going to buy a bigger price if you don't do it 
in terms of your integrity. And if you stand up, then it can help empower other people to stand up. I hope that I did it in a way that was as kind as I could. I know that uh, of the people who disagree with me, most of them are doing it from a good place because they see a problem and they want to solve it. My problem is that I think that the cure I experienced is worsening the disease. And it's fascinating that this piece came out the same day, same day as another piece in uh, Wall Street Journal. And it's out of College Station, Texas. And listen to this, just the opening. I was fired from my nursing job this year for refusing to take implicit bias training. After 39 years as a nurse of providing equal care to all my patients without regard to their race, I objected to a mandatory course grounded in the idea that I am racist because I am white. I fear every healthcare professional will soon be forced to take, uh, make the same awful decision I did. Falsely admit to being a racist or abandon the medical field. The idea of implicit bias is grounded in the belief that white people treat those who aren't white worse than they, those who are. It's part of the woke assumption that society, including healthcare, suffers from systemic racism. Accordingly, my own supposed implicit bias, which is a comp uh, euphemism for ingrained racism, must be rooted out. Not only that, it must be replaced with a preferential treatment for the non-white. I fail to see how real racial discrimination is justified by my non-existent racism. Powerful, I think. She goes on. She says, states are increasingly requiring implicit bias training as a condition for obtaining medical and nursing licenses. As of July, the Kentucky Board of Nursing requires that all registered nurses take a continuing education course on implicit bias. In July, as a journalistic exercise, I paid $5 and signed up for the recommended course created by the Kentucky Nurses Association. Nurses are told that implicit bias kills and that white privilege is a, quote, covert form of racism. The uh, course walks nurses through their possible con contributions to, quote, modern-day lynchings in the workplace. And then she goes over, in Michigan, they're doing something similar. And basically, this is a, a, a terrible direction for our country. Accusing my peers and me of racism will contribute to soaring levels of burnout, causing many to leave the nursing profession. Some, like me, will surely be forced out. Patients, especially minorities, will experience the most harm. Their caregivers are being told to admit to unconscious racism. Why would you see a physician who supposedly hates you and will hurt your health? Before I was fired, I wrote the following to the leadership of Baylor Scott and White Health. That was a firm that employed her. Treating patients, co-workers, family workers, family members, and my superiors in a fair and respectful manner is the practice I have subscribed to during my entire 39-year nursing career. The same is true of most of the medical professionals I've worked with, she wrote. No one, not me, not my peers, nor our patients, 
will be better off if more states call us liars and racists. And uh, she is a registered nurse. Her name is Laura L. Morgan. Uh, look, this entire idea of uh, trying to ascribe guilt, it actually <laughs> plays into the hands of the most actively evil guy on the planet right now, whose name is Vladimir Putin, who's giving uh, his, in, in his big speech that he gave, uh, I believe it was on Friday night, uh, his, uh, his version of the anti-American worldview gives a special role to Russia. And he said, I would like to remind you that in the past, ambitions of world domination have repeatedly shattered against the courage and resilience of our people, Mr. Putin told his audience in the Kremlin on Friday. In this view, Russia is the bulwark of the rest of the world against the Western aggression and domination by the Anglo-Saxons. And for Mr. Putin, the conquest of Ukraine is an essential step in preserving Russia's ability to carry out its historic mission to curb the ambitions of the imperial West. What's so incredible about this is the big triumph that he's talking about is beating the Nazis. <clears throat> Did the Russians contribute hugely in blood and treasure and effort to beating the Nazis? Of course they did. But they started out as their allies. It was only because Hitler... Uh, actually decided to uh, launch Operation Barbarossa and to betray his alliance with Russia. The war began when Russia and Germany jointly invaded Poland from two different sides at once. And uh, by the way, they, they weren't so defending themselves against uh, pure evil with Napoleon because if you look at the czarist regime they were defending, they held the overwhelming majority as serfs. They were slaves in Russia in 1812 when Napoleon invaded. And this entire idea of trying to single out uh, Americans because we have been successful, uh, British people before us because they've been often allied with Americans and, and Britain has been uh, through a fairly long history a remarkably successful country. The, the idea of trying to assault people, discredit people based upon race, the use of the term Anglo-Saxons to uh, smear all of us, and Americans are from everywhere, not just from England or from Saxony. I mean, come on. This is a, a sickness, and we deserve better. We need better. Uh, we need to build better in this greatest nation on God's green earth.